We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. And as I put on record, I'm going to share a screen. So this will be a PowerPoint presentation on basically confession and Holy Communion. Okay. So. There we go. So we begin with first confession and first Holy Communion, the sacred penance and the most blessed sacraments, right? There's a lot there, even in that title for this opening of this class. First of all, we call it the sacrament of penance. Uh, people tend to like to call it reconciliation. But the fact is, is that there must be penance preceding any reconciliation. So sacrament of penance and reconciliation, that would be allowable, but to call it just the sacrament of reconciliation is an issue. Sacrament of penance, that's what it's called, confession. Most blessed sacrament, the Holy Eucharist, it is the most blessed sacraments. There are seven sacraments in all, but the most blessed, the greatest of all by far, is the Holy Eucharist. And of course, for first communicants or any of us, what happens inside that confessional? And I love confessionals because they're a great piece of furniture. They obviously are meant to be a place for a holy sacrament, but it's also meant to be a place in which there's a certain hiddenness, a place in which both priest and penitent are protected. Uh, so it's a very special place, a piece of furniture, the confessional. And of course, after one has received confession, one can then receive Holy Communion. Notice any true First Communion class always does confession first. Sacrament of penance first, then sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. Now, that doesn't mean you have to go to confession before you ever go to communion, like for your whole life. But the connection between the two sacraments is essential. Confession and Holy Eucharist go together. They're very, very connected. And of course, we should begin, as we always do, with the fact that there's one true God. I mean, this is the foundation of our holy faith. There is one true God. Not three gods, not five gods, one God. We are monotheistic, right? One God and only one God. And this one God, he cannot be measured in any way. This is a, a basic principle. God, if he's truly God, cannot be measured. He's infinite. So you can't take a tape measure and say, well, how big is God? He must be really big. No, no. He doesn't have a size because the size would be a limitation. And he has no limits. And of course, in terms of age, he's eternal. You can't put a calendar on God's life or age. You can't say, oh, he's really, really old. No, he doesn't have an age. He's not old. He's not young. He just is. Always will be. Always has been. As it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be world without end. So there's no age with God. For him, everything is an eternal now. He sees when you were born and he sees when you die at the same moment. That's God. Can't be measured. He's all powerful, all knowing all loving, everywhere. See, he's not just a powerful God. He's, he's all powerful. In fact, he is power itself. He's infinite. That is, he has no end, no boundaries, no limits. He's everywhere. He's eternal, outside of time. He's all good, not just good, 
goodness itself. He's not just wise, he's wisdom itself. And he's completely self-sufficient. He doesn't need anybody. Doesn't need us. Doesn't need anything in creation. <laughs> doesn't rely upon us at all in any way. He is the great I am. Remember when Moses knelt before the burning bush on Mount Sinai, what happened, right? He asked the good Lord, whom should I say you are when people ask me? Who are you? And God said simply, I am who am. I am he who is. God is existence. That's big, <laughs> extraordinary. And God desired to create and to share his goodness with us. That's the thing about being good, right? Good people share, all right? And God is goodness itself. Therefore, goodness has to share of itself. Now, this doesn't mean that God had to create the universe. Because, remember, there's three divine persons in one God, right? Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So the Father can show goodness to the Son. And the Father and the Son as one loving union can show goodness to the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost can show goodness to the Father and to the Son. They're showing goodness within the Trinity. They don't need creation, but they create things freely and lovingly because they want to share freely their goodness with creation, with us, and especially with angels and men. God loves all creatures infinitely, that's true, but he gives greater things and wondrous gifts to certain parts of creation, especially angels and men, those whom he can lift up to live with him for all eternity. So for angels and men, God shares his gifts even more than anyone else in creation. And the good God and creation, we should love the good God and the creation he made. Why did God make you? Well, there's lots of answers, right? This answer, which I have written in your children's catechism, is God made me to show his goodness and to make me happy with him in heaven. And then, of course, what follows is something that we're familiar with from our Baltimore catechism. What must you do to be happy with God in heaven? Be happy with God in heaven. Well, I must know him, love him, and serve him in this world in order that I might be happy with him in the next. No love and serve in this world and be happy with him in the next world. That is what we are to do as creatures. I mean, think about it. What's the main point of our life? Even second graders, what's the most important thing of your life? To give glory to God. Give God glory. He deserves glory because he made us. We are his. We are his people. We belong to him, right? And of course, within that one God, and we only believe in one God, God is one. There can't be more than one. There can only be one utterly perfect being that doesn't need anybody else. One God, that's it. But within that one God, there are threeness of persons, a trinity of divine persons. Father is the first person. Son is the second person. And the Holy Ghost is the third person. You make the sign of the cross. Remember we did that? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. That is the trinity of divine persons in the one only God. And you might say, how can there be three in one? Well, we have some examples of it even in creation. What about a triangle? One shape and yet three sides. One shape, yet three angles. St. Patrick used the shamrock, three-leaf shamrock, to speak of the Trinity. You get one sort of piece of vegetation, and yet it has three leaves, right? And of course, for the parents, if you want to explain this in some way, just, just think about even within ourselves, human beings. You know, if I look in a mirror, you know, I see my reflection. And so 
human beings, even when they're really young, begin to have self-knowledge of who they are. And of course, that self-knowledge grows into something called self-love, a good, proper self-love. If God loves me, I got to love myself, right? I got to take care of myself. I got to be a steward over my body. I got to take care of my soul. I got to show myself a certain love. And so think about it. In God, if God the Father looked in the mirror, he would see his son, his reflection, his image. And of course, the Father and the Son, having gazed upon each other, have a love for each other, self-love, which, of course, is the Holy Ghost. Blessed be the Holy and Undivided Trinity. How many persons are there in the one true God? There are three divine persons. First person is Father. Second person is the Son. Third person is the Holy Ghost. And we call this mystery, we call these three divine persons the most blessed trinity, the most holy trinity. Of course, when you see trinity, you see T-R-I, right? That means three. So tricycle, right? But three in one. We're not saying there's three gods, but, but three in one. Trinity, triune God. And of course, one of those persons, and only one, the second person of the Holy Trinity, only the Son of God became man. That's it. And when he became man in Mary's womb, we know this truth, right? When he became man in Mary's womb, he was given a name when he was born. And that name is a name that is above every other, every other name. So the name of Jesus, every knee shall bend in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth. And every tongue proclaim to the glory of God the Father, Jesus Christ is Lord. So Jesus is the Son of God, become flesh, become man in Mary's womb. How extraordinary is that? And how wonderful it is that God would become one of us. God would become Emmanuel, God with us. Extraordinary. And who is Jesus? You know, he is literally, quote, the Son of God. And what is Jesus? He's both God and man. <laughs> so in other words, Jesus, in terms of his personality, the person that he is, is literally the second person of the Holy Trinity. Therefore, Jesus is not a human person like you and me. He's not. He's a divine person. He's the son of God. Now think about it. My personhood is named Father Shanna. And you have a personhood as well, a personality. You know, it makes you different than anybody else. But we're all human persons. But then I ask, and we should ask, what is Jesus? What kind of thing is he? What kind of nature or natures does he have? I have a human nature. That's the kind of essence, the kind of being that I am, a human being. But for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, become man in Mary's womb. He's got two natures. He's two things. He's God and man. He's got a divine nature and a human nature. True God, true man. Perfect God, perfect man. What is the name, of course, of the Son of God made man? Jesus is that name. And Jesus was born on that first Christmas day. More than 2,000 years ago. And this Jesus Christ is both God and man. One divine person with two natures, both human and divine. Remember I mentioned in class last week, if you were there, the notion of St. Cecilia, the great virgin martyr who died for the holy Catholic faith, who shed her blood. I remember that she was partially beheaded, partially. The soldier did not have the strength or the courage to completely behead her. So she laid on the ground for three days, bleeding from her neck as she was dying. And she sang. She sang the praises of God. That's why she's a patroness of church music. She sang. But when she died, 
And I told you this last Sunday. When she died, she held out her fingers. On one hand was one finger extended, her index finger. On the other hand, her right hand, two fingers were extended, her index finger and her middle finger. She was professing Christ even in death. Christ is one divine person, one who. He's got two natures, divine and human, true God, true man. What an extraordinary truth of our holy faith. And God creates man. He creates man on the sixth day of creation. Think about it. Way back when, thousands and thousands of years ago, God created man on the sixth day of creation. He created the angels that is said on the first day of creation. But man was the summary. Man was the complete finishing of creation. Because on the seventh day, God rested. And look at the fingers. The finger of God the Father touching the finger of Adam, the first man. You see that on the left? And of course, what do you see in that image on the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo's glorious work in that great chapel built to the glory of God? You see God the Father giving his finger to Adam, giving him life, giving him breath. And yet, look at his other hand, his, his, his left hand. It's wrapped around a woman, and it's pointing to a child, a little baby. Can you see that? What does that tell us? That God the Father is giving life to Adam, but he's saying, you know what, Adam? You're not what it's all about. There'll be a new Adam one day. In fact, it's all about Christ becoming man. God becoming man and the mother that would give him flesh. She is the ultimate Eve. He is the ultimate real father of the world to come. The new Adam, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Adam before our first parents, we spoke about this, right? The first man and first woman were Adam and Eve. And that's a fact. Adam and Eve are not made up. They're real. The first man was Adam. And Adam was made from the dust, from the slime, from the dirt of this earth. God took some slime, some mud, some dust, and he breathed life into it. That's why we should always be humble, right? <laughs> Where does human race come from? Dirt, dirt. I mean, that's where we get the word humility, because in Latin, humus. Remember, we have hummus sometimes when you have chips or, or crackers, right? Hummus. Hummus. Hummus means dirt. That's where we come from. Humility is based on the nature of dirt where we come from. But where was Adam created from? From dust. But what was Eve created from? From Adam's side, from Adam's rib, from Adam's side where his heart was. Not from his toes, not from his head, but from his side, right next to him. And God gave Adam and Eve everything you could imagine. He made them immortal. They weren't going to die. Imagine that. They were never going to die. They weren't going to suffer. No pain, no cancer, no disease. But then they sinned. And they sinned in a very, very serious way. They disobeyed the good Lord. God said, you can eat from any tree in the Garden of Eden. Look at these peach trees over here. Look at these various vineyards over here. Look, you can eat anything, but just don't eat from this one tree known as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet, when that serpent came wrapped around that tree, he tempted them, and they willed to eat that forbidden fruit. They listened to the lies of a serpent, and they embraced the sin. They knew sin. They tasted sin for the first time. 
They were sinless when they were created. They didn't even know what sin was, but they tasted and they knew it. Not only were they disobedient, but they were thieves. Thieves. They, they, interesting, our Lord was crucified between two thieves when he was put to death. We're thieves. That's us. We are the original crime family. We stole the fruit. But the greatest thing that God gave to Adam and Eve was the gift of sanctifying grace. When they were created, God gave them his divine life. God's divine life in my soul is grace. God's life within me, his supernatural life within me. Or to be really fancy, parents, you can maybe look to St. Peter's letter. I think it's his first one. What is grace? A participation in the divine nature. To be really technical, I would say a created participation in the divine nature. That's, you can't even begin to imagine how extraordinary that gift is. A gift of God's divine life in our souls. We become like unto God. We can call him father. We become his adopted children. This is what grace does. It gives us supernatural life. And yet Adam and Eve, they threw it all away. They didn't want that gift, and therefore they lost it, taken away from them. Now, this is the thing about our Lord. He's not just satisfied with giving us natural life on earth, right? So the good Lord isn't just wanting to give us natural earthly life. He wants to give us heavenly supernatural life above for all eternity. That's why he's giving you grace in your soul at baptism, right? Baptism, the first sacrament, that's when you receive grace in your soul for the first time. And hopefully it will always stay there. I'll never lose that state of grace. Oh my, don't lose that state of grace. But God gives us not just natural life when we're born from our mother, but he gives us supernatural life when we're born from the baptismal font from Mother Church, right? Beautiful. Look at the life that the good Lord gives to us through the sacraments. I love this image. Hopefully it's clear enough for you to see. You see Christ upon the holy wood of the cross. You see the church, his mystical body, his bride in the background as well. And from the cross and the church are flowing rivers of grace. When our Lord's side was pierced with a spear, you know the story. St. Longinus pierced the side of our Lord to determine if he were dead or not. And he was dead, but out came crystal clear, beautiful water and blood. Blood and water flowing forth from his side, the life of the sacraments, the life that the church gives to fallen men to bring them back into the state of grace. Look at those wondrous rivers of God's divine life flowing into human souls, right? So again, God is not satisfied with just giving us natural birth. He wants to give us supernatural birth. So look at the left. A baby is born in the hospital. Maybe a baby is born at home. That's natural life. But you know what the baby's missing? He has no supernatural life. He's a child of wrath. He's not a child of God at that moment, not supernaturally so. Potentially so, but not supernaturally so. Not at this moment, no. And yet what happens, God will share with him heavenly life. Look at the right. Now the baby is born through the womb of the church through the baptismal font, the waters that will flow and cleanse the soul of original sin and will give the soul sanctifying grace. I mean, when I ask, you know, what is original sin? Well, original sin, of course, is the 
sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. It was the original sin that they actually committed. But for us, original sin is a consequence, a condition. We come into this world without the grace of God because Adam and Eve, our first parents, threw it in God's face. We don't want you. We don't want your ways. They rebelled. Good Lord is not happy with just giving us natural good things. He must give us supernatural good things. So uh, on earth, he gives us food. He gives us food, earthly food. That's nice. But we're meant to be heavenly beings too. So he gives us supernatural food. Supernatural food. The Holy Eucharist is body, blood, soul, and divinity. Think about the natural healing that the good Lord gives you, right? Your body is able to heal if you have a scratch, if you have a cut, a wound. Your body can heal naturally. But what about your soul when it's hurt? You know, you got to go to confession and supernaturally cleansed and healed and given a remedy so that your soul can be healed and get back into good shape. Look at the boy there in the confessional, right? Just imagine what the boy might say. He might say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. This is my first confession. Or he might say, it's been a week since my last confession. And these are my sins. You know, I, I disobeyed my mom, mom and dad. They wanted me to do something, and I, and I didn't do it right away. I, I decided to play outside instead. And then, and then I lied to my older sister because I didn't want to get in trouble. Um, and he's sort of, so he's wounded. So he's confessing his sins and getting healed and hopefully given strength not to do the same sins again. So the original sin, our first parents, Adam and Eve were created in a state of grace. We know this. They had God's divine life within them. They were close friends with the Lord. The Lord loved them and they loved the Lord. But they lost their gift of grace. Because they ate the forbidden fruit, they disobeyed the good Lord, and they were thieves. And by the way, don't blame God. Gifts are not old. Gifts are not owed, right? Gifts aren't owed. If, it's, if, if a gift were owed, it's not a gift. You don't tell your parents at Christmas time, give me the gifts you owe me. No, gifts are given freely. And when... Certain gifts are given freely and they're not received as they ought to be received or they're rejected. God can take them back. And he did. He took back the gift of grace. It's a gift that didn't owe it to us at all. I think I told you last Sunday that when I was a little kid, I used to try to sneak around the house and try to find where Christmas gifts were hidden. And I got in trouble. And I wasn't given my Christmas gifts on Christmas Day because I was trying to find out what they were before Christmas started. I was sneaking around and acting in a bad way. And so my parents took away those gifts for a while. Well, why not? Now, these gifts aren't old. But, you know, what does sanctifying grace, that's the worst thing that can happen. When Adam and Eve sinned, they, they lost their grace. They, got, they lost God's divine life within them. As a result, they lost the right to eternal life. Heaven's gates were closed to them and all of us. But also, in addition to losing grace, which was the worst thing of all, they also lost their immortality in body. They could now die, and they would die. Although I have to admit that Adam and Eve lived for a long time. <laughs> 900 plus years. A long life, to say the least. And of course, some of the other things, almost curses connected with the fall of Adam. Work would become laborious. There'd be pains and sufferings, labor pains, you name it. But also the difficulty of having an inclination, a certain leaning towards bad behavior. We're weak in the will, very weak sometimes. 
We're like this leaning tower of Pisa, right? We talked about that. You can see sort of the tower leaning, bell tower in Pisa, Italy. And by the way, for some reason, they want to make that bell tower straight again. <laughs> Who would go? <laughs> anyway, I give you this image in order that you see what original sin has done to human beings, even after baptism. We have a problem with an inclination, a certain leaning towards bad behavior. Now, it's not sinful in itself, but we struggle. We, we, we almost are, are, are like, it's like in us to almost resist what is good. We can feel it sometimes. We know we should obey our parents. We know that. And yet we, we want to, you know, I want to do that. I, you know, we, we, we resist. We know that we should share with our siblings that we should play nice. And yet, you know, sometimes we yell at our siblings or we, we, we even punch them in the shoulder or something. We shouldn't be doing these things, but we have a leaning towards bad behavior. We got to work on that every day of our life by God's grace. Man is body and soul. We know that. Man, human beings, you and me, we're made up of a body. Look at your hands, look at your feet, look at your head. Well, actually, I'm not sure how you could look at your head. <laughs> look at your shoulder, look at your elbow, right? We're made up of a body, but also a spiritual part in us called the soul. And your body can hurt. Uh, you can break your arm, right? And so your soul can also hurt. You can break one of the Ten Commandments. Okay, you can commit what's called an actual sin. Not just the problem of original sin, the fact that we have a condition in our soul, which, you know, initially when we were conceived and born, we were conceived and born without grace. That was our condition, fallen condition. But even after receiving baptism, some of us continue to sin actually, our own personal sins. And they can either be venial or they can be mortal. But, you know, as I said on Sunday, let's not get into this game of, well, you know, it's only a venial sin anyway. It's not a mortal sin, so it's okay, right? Don't get into that. Every sin, every deliberate sin in particular, is offensive to God. It's not good. And in a real way, when we sin, it's like we're crucifying Jesus again. That's why I see that. You see the picture of the boy on the right? He's got the hammer, he's got the nails, and he's, he's, he, he's driving those nails into Jesus again as if he's crucifying Christ again. That's what sin is. Actual sin is hurting Jesus. We don't want to do that. But especially, we don't want to commit a mortal sin. That's true. Mortal sin kills grace in the soul. You lose grace like Adam and Eve lost it. You don't want to do that. Mortal is what it says, deadly. Venial is a bit lighter. It wounds but doesn't kill. Wounds but doesn't kill. But as I said on Sunday, don't get into these games. Oh, it's only a venial sin, don't worry. No, don't say that. Remember when I said St. Teresa of Jesus said, it would be better if the whole world were destroyed than a venial sin be committed. One venial sin. What is sin? Disobedience to God's laws, plain and simple. Disobedience to God's law, and of course, mortal sin is a deadly sin. It kills grace in your soul. You lose divine life. You lose heaven. And you got to get back to confession so you can get back in a state of grace. If you don't, if you die unrepentant with the mortal sin in your soul, with not being sorry, you go to hell. Plain and simple. Because mortal sin makes us enemies of God. You're either a friend of God or you're an enemy of him. There's no middle ground. There's no like neutral souls, you know. It's got to be either you're for him or you're against him. Plain, or, plain, plain and simple. 
This is a good analogy for parents to emphasize with their children. A venial sin versus a mortal sin. So a mortal sin is like breaking a commandment. It's breaking the commandment fully. It's like breaking a stick. Snap. Breaking. You miss Mass on Sunday through your own fault, right? You know, you miss Sunday Mass through your own fault, an obligatory Mass. You're breaking a commandment, the third commandment. But then, you know, you might be told by your parents, you got to be ready in five minutes, and you decide to play for a little bit, and you're not getting ready, and all of a sudden you make the family late for Mass, maybe five, ten minutes. All of a sudden, you know, with your negligence, Caused you to be late for mass, and as a result, you're bending the commandments. You know, bending, coming a little bit late to mass. You can use this with a lot of different sort of things. Like, but what about like bending, breaking? So, tell a white lie. You know, they call it a white lie, but every lie is bad. But a white lie, or sort of a smaller lie. You know, you you, you could like cheat in a game sometimes. It's not a mortal sin, but it can be a sin. A venial sin, you cheat, you lie. Some of them are lighter sins, lighter white lies, or not big cheating on big financial things, but like in a little game you're playing with your friends. But then there's a big lie, like you witness against a person in court. It's called perjury. That's a, that's a mortal sin. It's a big lie. Mortal sins are most deadly. And as a result, you cannot consume the Holy Eucharist when you are in mortal sin. You can't nourish what's dead. Corpses don't eat, and souls in mortal sin are not to eat of the living bread come down from heaven, Christ's flesh and blood, soul and divinity. So, when you got mortals in your soul, you got to go to confession. Dead people can't eat. We spoke about that. There's the quotation. There's the image of this, the world being destroyed. St. Teresa said it would be better for the whole world to be destroyed than there be one venial sin committed. Huh? So all sin is bad. Mortal sin kills grace, admittedly. But venial sin, though it only wounds us, is not a good thing. Now, sometimes we call sacraments and categorize them according to being a sacrament of the living or a sacrament of the dead. So baptism is a sacrament of the dead. It's for those who are not in the state of grace. Baptism is for those who have original sin in them, at least, if not also actual personal sins on top of that. It's, it, it's a sacrament for those who are dead. They do not have grace within them. So when you receive the sacrament of baptism, you are made alive. You go from death to life. You become a new creation, become godly. You're now living a new life of the risen Christ. But our Lord is too smart for us. We know that. He knew that even after the wonders of the baptism that we received when we were infants in many cases, he knew that we would nonetheless sin again. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? God saves us from hell. God saves us from mortal sin, deadly sin. God saves us from original sin. He gives us new life at baptism. He makes us one of his own. He has us participate in the strength and wonders of his passion, death, and resurrection and ascension into heavenly glory. He gives us the gift of eternal life and sanctifying grace and the gift of the Catholic faith, and yet <laughs> he knew that we would sin again. How ungrateful are we? And so he gave us a sacrament of penance. 
The penance, or sacrament penance, is that sacrament in which sins committed after baptism are forgiven, right? So sacrament of confession, sacrament of penance and reconciliation, is that sacrament to forgive sins committed after baptism. I bet you can guess who that priest is in the confessional. That's Padre Pio, St. Pio of Petrochina. One of our confirmation students took that name, Pio. Padre Pio, St. Pio of Petrochina. He heard hours and hours of confession each day because he knew that people commit sins after baptism. So when you think about what certain sins are and how, how to sort of look at them, there are mortal sins. Right, they're deadly. So picture a coffin. Picture a coffin. Picture a graveyard. Picture a cemetery. That's what mortal sin is. You're dead. But venial sins, as you see on the right, a picture of a wounded soldier. Venial sins wound you. You're not dead, but you're wounded. Which is not good to be, but you're not dead. You still have grace in your soul, but you're wounded. That's why when we commit venial sins so regularly, oh, it's just a venial sin. You do too many of those, you're going to get very disposed towards a mortal sin one day. You know, it just it sort of happens. You start disobeying your mom in little ways, not doing what she asks you to do right away. You get used to that after a while. And maybe one day, you might say something very mean to her. I mean, so mean, so disrespectful that it's a mortal sin. And believe me, young people can commit mortal sin. They can. It happens regularly. So, so you need a sacrament of reconciliation, of, of penance. And remember, I told you this, right? It's a sacrament of penance, then reconciliation, right? Sacrament of penance and reconciliation. Penance first. Good Friday comes first. Christ dies upon the cross. We die to our sins first. Then comes Easter. Then comes oneness with the good Lord. Being reconciled, right? The prodigal son had to come home first. He had to come upon his knees and Say to his father, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. He had to do penance. Then he was given the rings and the, and, and, and the sandals and, and the special shoes and the fatty calf. Penance, then be reconciled to God, right? Turn away from sin first, then you're at peace. Then you're reconciled with God, right? The prodigal son, look at him. He did penance. He fell to his knees. He repented. He shed tears. Then he was reconciled by the good Lord. So what does the penitent bring to confession? Right? What must you do to receive the sacrament of penance worthily? What must you bring to confession? To receive the sacrament of penance worthily, I must... First, A, find out my sins. What are my sins? Go through the commandments. Number two, B, be sorry for my sins. Not just knowing my sins, I have to be sorry for them. Number three, C, make up my mind not to sin again. So not just being sorry for them, but sorrow unto amendment of life, changing. I'm not going to do that again. D, I've got to tell my sins to the priest. Our Lord said it all the time to the, Israel, the, the, the Israelites, you know, the, the Jews, you know, tell your sins to the priest. Go to the priest. Be cleansed of leprosy. And then finally, E, do the penance the priest gives to me. So find out your sins. Be sorry for them. Make up your mind not to sin again. Tell the sins to the priest. Confess them. And then do the penance, the satisfaction that the priest demands. 
Now, y'all like pies, right? You like apple pie, cherry pie, derby pie. I hope y'all like derby pie. Mm-mm-mm. Well, confession has a pie too. It's good pie. Three pieces and all three pieces got to be in that pie or else your confession is no good. First piece of pie for confession is, well, you got to say your sins. You got to confess them. You have to let the priest know the sins that you've committed. Got to let them know. Got to speak them out, write them out. You, 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 you got to get them out. Number two piece of pie, second piece of pie, you got to have contrition. This is the most important piece, really. You got to have sorrow. Got to have contrition. I'm contrite. I'm heartily sorry for having offended thee. And number three, you got to do a penance. You got to do a satisfaction. The priest will give you an assignment. Go pray a deck of the rosary. Go pray seven Hail Marys in honor of Mary's seven sorrows. Go pray the Apostles' Creed two times. Okay? That's your penance. That's what you got to do. You got to make a satisfaction. All three pieces have to be in place in the confessional or else there's no pie. There's no sacrament. If you go to sacrament confession without being sorry, it doesn't work. If you go to confession, you don't confess any sins. You just don't say anything. It's not going to work. And if you refuse to do your penance, refuse to make satisfaction, it doesn't work. You don't want to have your confession be worse than it actually, it'd be, be even worse. I mean, think about it. If you come into a confession with, let's say, four mortal sins as the little Baltimore Catechism sort of drawing says, and you go into the confessional and you don't tell all four, but only three of them, the mortal sins, you come out with five mortal sins now because you have a sin of sacrilege. You have abused a sacrament confession. So be open with the priest, what you've done. And, and say, don't, don't hold anything back. And to be sorry for what you've done. Confess your sins in kind and number. What kind of thing did you do? And how many times? Now, this is especially true for mortal sin. Okay, You don't have to do this necessarily with venial sin. But with mortal sins, you have to confess kind and number. What kind of thing did you do? What did you do? That's what your parents sometimes ask you. What did you do? And if it's especially mortal sin, a serious sin, how many times did you do it? And the reason the priest asks that sometimes is not because he's interested in details. It's because he has to give a penance. If you miss Mass on Sunday through your own fault one time, that's bad, but there's a certain amount of prayers that you would have to say. But if you miss Mass through your own fault 20 times in a row, there's a difference. Right? So that's why mortal sins are numbered, especially. So what did you do and how many times did you do it? And of course... When you're in the confessional, on the other side, the penitent side, the priest is there. But you know what? It's really Christ. Christ is the one who forgives your sins. I'm just an instrument. If Christ were erasing a chalkboard, I would be the eraser. But Christ would be the teacher, the master who's erasing the sins, using just me as a, as a little bit of an eraser. That's all I am. Nothing more than that. So when you hear those words in the confessional, in Latin, ego te absolvo, I absolve you from your sins. That's the form of the sacrament. Those are the words of the sacrament. The ego is not me. <laughs> the ego is Christ. When I say this is my body at the altar, it's not my body, it's Christ's body. 
Ego te absolvo. Christ is the priest. I absolve you, he is saying, through me, my lips, my voice. But Christ, the high priest, he's a son of God. He is the redeemer, the savior of men. How to go to confession, right? We're going to have first confession for the first communicants, at least our Lady of Lords, on May 22nd, Saturday. So, how to do confession? First of all, we call the confessional the box sometimes, the box. Like I said, it's a wonderful piece of furniture. Now, hopefully, this coming weekend, I'll have a chance to show you the confessional, what it looks like in the inside. But if you can see, it's got curtains so that people don't really know who's inside there. And hopefully, it covers up at least most of the sound. But it hides you. That's good sometimes. When you do bad stuff, it's, you should be ashamed of it, right? We're all ashamed when we sin. The confessional, the box. And of course, there's a screen. A screen between you and the priest. And the screen also has a piece of linen cloth covering it. So I cannot see and you cannot see me. And there's a goodness to that too. For a couple of reasons. First of all, because sin is not a pleasing thing. It's embarrassing sometimes. And as a result, it's good to be sort of hidden. I don't, want, I don't want people to see me. But also, sometimes when little ones, when they confess their sins, sometimes their sins are very light in nature. And sometimes priests, which they should never do, might sort of giggle a bit. That wouldn't be good, would it? So it's good to hide that. The priest does not um, have any reaction that you could see, right? So that screen is a, it helps us to remain hidden. And that's what our Lord likes. He likes when people sneak a healing. Remember the woman in the gospel? She had had a condition for years and years and years. And she felt, how am I going to be cured no one can cure me. Every doctor has looked at me. I can't be cured. You know what? When Jesus passes by, I'm just going to touch the hem of his garment. I'm going to sneak a healing. Just touch the very edge of his garment. And as soon as she touched that, power went out from our Lord and she was healed. Kind of like going to the confessional. You're going to sneak a healing. No one's going to see me go in. But I'm going to sneak in there and sneak out. I mean, confession is such a blessing. Such a blessing. It's difficult going in. I'll admit that. Because, you know, priests go to confession too, you know. We don't go to confession to ourselves. <laughs> we go to other priests. It's difficult going in. But it's wonderful coming out. Right? And I think everybody who does their first confession... They're a little bit nervous when they go in, but they smile when they come out. They did it. And they feel reconciled to God more fully. Nothing like it. Nothing like it. You read stories in books about people who have been away from confession, been away from the church for 30 years. It's tough going back to confession. But once they confess their sins... After being away for 30 years and it reconciled to the good Lord, my goodness, they are so happy. They've never been more happy in their life. Look inside, right? You have a priest side. And of course, as you can see on the left, there is the little screen with a little linen cloth that sort of gives a certain hiddenness, anonymity. He's got the stole, the purple stole. You wear purple as a sign of penance. You don't wear white in the confession. You wear a purple stole. It's a sign of penance. It's like Lent. You wear purple during Lent and during Advent and during Septuagesima. It's a penitential season in some way. And of course, you got the penitent side with the kneeler, right? And the act of contrition is written out. That helps out, I think. But you should memorize that act of contrition. That's one of those prayers you got to know. 
Got to know the act of contrition. And of course, how do you begin? It's very straightforward. Just a few more slides. We're almost done for this evening. You begin by saying, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I love saying that when I'm going to confession because I want the priest's blessing. When you say, bless me, Father, the priest will bless you. Right? Just don't say, uh, yeah, well, yeah, it's been like a week's month. No, no, bless me, Father. That's how you begin. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. And he gives you a blessing. You want his blessing that you might make a good confession. How long has it been since your last confession, right? So you got to tell the priest how long it's been. Or you say this, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. This is my first confession. I've never been before. This is my first one. But eventually, you know, once you do your first confession, you're going to do a second and a third and a fourth. And so you'll say, well, uh, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been a week since my last confession. It's been two weeks since my last confession. It's been a month since my last confession. Now, you never want to go more than that, really, to be honest with you. You don't want to go more than a month. You really, you really don't. You really don't. I mean... I think it's important to get to confession regularly, right? Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. This is my first confession. That's how you're going to begin on Saturday, May 22nd for some of you. And then you should tell the priest your state in life. You're not going to tell the priest who you are. You're not going to say, I'm John Smith. You're not going to say that. Don't say that. No. You're going to tell the priest basically your state in life, okay? For, for, for most of you, on May 22nd, you're going to say, I'm a young child living at home. I'm a young child. I can probably figure that out when I hear your voice because young children have a childlike voice, but you're going to say, I'm a young child. That's who I am. But when I go to confession, I say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been a week since my last confession, I'm a Catholic priest and I'm a religious under vows. That means something. My sins can have far more gravity than others because of my consecrated life. Or, this is important. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been a week since my last confession. I'm a married person. I got, I'm a father to children and I have a wife. I'm married. That means something. It does. There's certain sins that a married person commits, which, which can be more grave. Or I'm unmarried. You know, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been a week since my last confession. I'm a single adult man. These things are important. The doctor needs to know where it hurts, right? Where does it hurt? You got to tell the priest where you hurt. So you got to let the priest know where the sins are what they are. The divine physician, Jesus, knows your sins already, but he wants you to let him know where it hurts. And that's helpful to us in terms of being healed. I got to know where it hurts, and I got to let the priest know. And you use a whisper voice. When you go to confession, you don't say, bless me. You don't say that. Bless me, Father, for I, it's a whisper voice. You're hidden. But remember, Father Shannon is 56 years old. And as a result, my hearing isn't as good when I was 25. So don't make it so mouse-like that I can't, that no one could hear you. So a whisper voice, but not so soft, I can't hear you. And just to let you know, there's something called the seal of confession. That this is very important. What a priest hears in the confessional, he may not let known to anyone outside the confessional. He's under the seal of confession. A seal of confession is the bond of secrecy that forbids the priest to reveal for any reason whatsoever what he has been told in the confessional under pain of, 
of, of, of excommunication if he were to say it. The priest should be willing to go to, the, to death not to reveal what he has heard in the confessional. It stays there. What is said there stays there. It does not come out. And if he does bring it out, if he does tell people what he heard in the confessional, if he reveals things, you know, in terms of the person and the sins they committed, he can be excommunicated from the church. So this is an act of contrition, which is written in our confessional. I love this act of contrition because it has two types of sorrow. It has attrition or imperfect contrition and perfect sorrow or contrition. So remember this prayer. You got to remember this prayer. This is one of those prayers you got to know. Oh my God, I am heartily sorry for having offended thee. And I detest all my sins because I dread the loss of heaven, the pains of hell. Attrition, that's imperfect contrition. I'm sorry because I dread the loss of heaven, the pains of hell. I don't want to go to hell. But most of all, because they offend thee, my God. This is perfect contrition. They offend you. You're my friend who art all good and deserving of all my love. I firmly resolve with the help of thy grace to confess my sins, to do penance, and to amend my life. Now, some people end their confession a bit differently. Sometimes they might say, I firmly resolve with the help of thy grace to sin no more and to avoid the near occasions of sin. Some people will say that too. That's a good one too. The light is on, so go to confession. When you see the light on, at least in our confessional, <laughs> that means somebody's in there. When you see the light is off, no one's there, so you can go in. So when a priest is sitting down in the confessional, the light will be on. When a person is going to confession, he's kneeling down, and the light goes on until he stops kneeling down and, and exits the confessional. So when you see the light on, on the, on the penitent side, the person going to confession, don't go in. Don't go in because somebody's there. When the light is off, you see a person exit, then you can go in. So this is sort of the dialogue. This is the back and forth for confession between priest and penitent. The priest will say something like this. He'll say, may the Lord be in your heart and on your lips that you make a good and humble confession. And you begin by making the sign of the cross, right? And using that simple formula, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. My last confession was so many days ago or months ago or heaven forbid, years ago. And these are my sins. You then list the kind and number of your sins. I missed mass three times on Sunday. I lied 20 times. Mortal sins. These are more serious and must be confessed. Venial sins, they're less serious and do not require confession all the time, but confessing venial sins is still a good practice. Now, the priest might ask you a question or two. He might. Usually he doesn't ask too many questions for the young people, but he might offer a little bit of advice as well. And the priest will give you a penance, a satisfaction to make. He'll say, pray, a decade of the rosary, pray seven Hail Marys, pray the Apostles' Creed. And of course, he'll then give absolution, that special prayer where he, in Christ's name, forgives your sins. Then he says, go in peace, your sins are forgiven. And that's a great feeling. Oh, there's no better feeling in the world. Confession may be scary, but it brings peace of soul. Now remember this. We're almost done. Remember this. Face judgment now, for mercy is the verdict. When we're judged at the end of the world, at, the, at our death, when we're judged in a particular judgment, there's no mercy. There's no forgiveness of sins at death. If you die in a state of mortal sin, you cannot be forgiven of your sins. It's over. You can only be forgiven of your sins while you're still alive, living. So I'm telling you one thing. 
Face judgment now in the confessional because you will be forgiven. Christ is a merciful judge, but at death, there's no forgiveness of sins at death. So if we die in a state of mortal sin, it's over. Okay, next week, we'll get together again, same time, 7.30 p.m., and we'll talk about our First Holy Communion. And we'll begin with the wonderful story of Blessed Imelda Lambertini. And maybe, as an assignment, maybe parents can have their first communicants look up the life of this wondrous Dominican saint. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Dominus vobiscum ecum spiritu tuo, blessing for you. Benedictio potentis patris et fidii, et spiritus sancti shindet super te, super vos et maniat semper. Amen. So as I look down, I don't see any questions. So I assume that everybody was able to understand most of what was said. And I'll just end by saying this. Remember to download this, if you would like, when the link is sent out to you so that you can maybe take this in little bits if you want to emphasize a few things here and there in preparation for your child's first communion. I look forward to that special mass on May 30th and also June 6th. So it's going to be a wonderful thing to be receiving our Lord's flesh and blood, his soul and divinity for the first time. God bless you all. Bye-bye.